Get ready, listeners. HPPodcraft.com We were sitting on a dilapidated 17th century tomb in the late afternoon of an autumn day at the old burying ground in Arkham and speculating about the unnameable. The unnameable. These guys should get a podcast. I want to hear what they're talking about. <laughs> Randolph, what do you think this thing is called? Uh, Joel, it's unnameable. <laughs> right, but if you're calling it the unnameable, Randolph, isn't that its name then? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's... Well, I mean, is it really the name? It's not a name. It's a it's kind of... A, a designation. Yeah. What you're calling it. That, of I course, mean, is the name of the story as well. Oh, right, yeah. The which, Unnameable. Which is a name. Yes. The Unnameable is the name it's of the story. the name of the story. And who are you, sir? Uh, my name is Chad Pfeiffer. And you? Chris Lackey, one of the co-hosts of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com. And, of course, the story, The Unnameable, is by the author, H.P. Lovecraft. It is. And that uh, reader who read that opening sentence of the story is Bruce Green. Yeah, he's read for us before. Yes, he has. He, he was, read uh, From Beyond. He's back. He is. From Beyond. Uh, I'm not kidding, though, that this uh, little conversation is something like a podcast, because uh, you've got these two guys out on this tomb, and they're not really having any real conversation that, no. you know, uh, it's more produced in a sense. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's more like a dialogue in the classical sense, where Lovecraft is trying to get something across by having two characters talk about Right, it. yeah. And they're really discussing the writing of H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, Carter is really, really... I mean, he's normally thinly veiled, but I mean, it's, yeah. it's you know, waffer thin. In fact, I, I know people speculate that Carter is Randolph Carter, mm -hmm. but I don't know if that's necessarily uh, the case because, I mean, he mentions in the story that he doesn't believe in the supernatural. Right. And I would think that Randolph Carter of, you know, the statement of Randolph Carter and all the other things would yeah. very much believe in the supernatural. Yeah. So, you know... Where does that leave us? Well, maybe this is years after therapy from the statement of Randolph Carter, <laughs> and they just convinced him it was a you know a bad phone prank. <laughs> None of that stuff really happened. But you know, it definitely. I mean, this Carter that's in this story because he does get called Carter. Anyway. Yes, yeah. His uh, name. His name is Carter. He definitely is. Uh, he definitely is HP. Right. Oh yeah. In fact, his companion that's at this grave with him that that guy's named uh, Joel Manton says. That his uh... constant talk about unnameable and unmentionable things was a very puerile device, quite in keeping with my lowly standing as an author. I was too fond of ending my stories with sights or sounds which paralyzed my hero's faculties and left them without courage, words, or associations to tell what they had experienced. We know things, he said, only through our five senses or our religious intuitions. Wherefore, it is quite impossible to refer to any object or spectacle which cannot be clearly depicted by the solid definitions of fact or the correct doctrines of theology, preferably those of the Congregationalists, with whatever modifications tradition and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle may supply. So, he's talking about himself. Yeah, you've got his stand-in <laughs> defending the idea that there are sanity-blasting, incomprehensible yeah. things out there that deserve literary exploration. Yeah. And then Joel, his friend, who's a high school principal, mm -hmm. says, uh, you know, there's only the natural world. And then there's the prescribed supernatural world mm -hmm. that religion tells us is out there. Right. And with the Conan Doyle reference, I suppose he's talking about those fairies that, right, uh, right. you know, Doyle thought he... Those pictures of the fairies. Yeah, the little girl took pictures of fairies that right. were really bad. Yeah fake photographs yeah which he believed in and he, he believed in all it. sorts of uh, 
supernatural. Yeah, supernatural things. There's all kinds of great stories about Conan Doyle debating with Houdini back and forth. Oh, right. Yeah, I yeah. read one in the Skeptical Inquirer that was great where Houdini produced a trick. Houdini said to Conan Doyle, if I could produce a trick for you that you can't explain, but I'm telling you it's a trick, will you then follow my line of reasoning to say that somebody might have tricked you, say, on these fairy photos or right. any of the silly things you believe mm -hmm, in? Mm -hmm. And Conan Doyle said, sure, and they did it. It was a, a, a spirit etching. Yeah, he like took a like a wadded up thing and threw it up against uh, right. uh, a chalkboard. It was a little cork ball that w had paint on it that yeah. went up, and Donald Doyle had selected the chalkboard, and the ball itself wrote on the slate. Yeah, like a word in German or something? Uh, yeah, like a that? word that Houdini hadn't seen. Right, that yeah. Doyle had written down, and it was just a trick. He yeah. had a, he had an associate in another room using a magnet or something. Yeah, he had, a, he had help, and there was yeah. like somebody had saw the paper from over his shoulder, and right. then went in the other room, and then used a magnet to like yeah. move it around the thing. But Doyle said his conclusion at the end of it was, "Well, you have supernatural powers." <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> no, you missed the point. This conversation, I believe, was actually probably a conversation that Lovecraft had with a friend of his, Maurice mm -hmm. Moe. Now, Maurice Moe was a teacher in Milwaukee, and they gotcha. were correspondence buddies. The earliest letter that we have. Of them was written in 1914 so they've been friends for a long time okay. and they actually physically met in 1923 where uh, he came out with his family to visit Lovecraft mm -hmm. and that was like the only time that they ever met uh, he Maurice had a wife and two young sons and they you know just hung out and had huh. coffee and I think they went to Providence and some of other Lovecraft's buddies they went on this the walk they went a walk over at, uh, on, on the beach like uh -huh. kind of this really rugged walk and all the other writer guys wimped out uh -huh. and didn't want to do it. They're like, you know, this is hard work. And Lovecraft's like, come on, this is awesome. Really? Goes, Lovecraft oh, yeah. was the guy that was into it. Yeah, he was really into it. And then all three of them went, well, I guess according to Lovecraft, this yeah. is in one of his letters yeah. that he said that they, right. they pushed down on. I punched out a shark on the way. <laughs> <laughs> they were pirates I had to defend us but, against. Uh, but he, Maurice Moe uh -huh. and Alfred Galpin, started this thing called the uh, Galmo Correspondence Group where they like kind of shared each other's letters oh, to okay. each other. So they kind of like all wrote to each other. It was other. their message board. It was their message board. Exactly. Yeah. That was where I was going with it. <laughs> so this is like a real guy and he was religious. Right. And so they, I, I'm assuming that this is probably, and this story was written soon after his visit because they, okay. they met in August of 1923 and this story was written in September of 1923. It was his view that only our normal objective experiences possess any aesthetic significance and that it is the province of the artist not so much to rouse strong emotion by action, ecstasy, and astonishment as to maintain a placid interest and appreciation by accurate, detailed transcripts of everyday affairs. Especially did he object to my preoccupation with the mystical and the unexplained, for although believing in the supernatural much more fully than I, he would not admit that it is sufficiently commonplace for literary treatment. I find that outside of Lovecraft, mm -hmm. that I actually, I don't read much in the way of supernatural stories. You know, I'm much more of a fan of like Raymond Carver. Oh, right. Yeah. Or uh, uh, Dennis Johnson or, or even Charles Bukowski, who, who sort of just describe life. Yeah. And then you take out of it maybe some larger things about the human condition. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do enjoy that stuff, but I really do enjoy the fantastical stuff. You know, I read lots of schlocky, uh, you know, horror, science fiction, fantasy yeah. kind of And kind those of things work as metaphors to explore the same thing. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, it gets down to what's the purpose of art and literature, and and um, a lot of people feel that it, it provides people with sort of imaginary frameworks through which they can process life, right. because life is incredibly random in its, in its real state, mm -hmm. and stories sort of have rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can use those to examine feelings and issues in sort of a safe place, you know, even though we might not be doing that consciously. 
but to Joel's point, you know, when you have a story about things that are so far from reality, not only can the reader not relate to them, but the writer can't describe them. Right. Um, how, you know, how is that really helping me? Yeah. I, I mean, how can I really get into that? You keep at the end of the story, you just said, well, I don't really know what happened. I went crazy. And, and that to me, I can't process my own human experiences. through. That. Yeah. And I see this is it puts you in a weird position because I personally I kind of agree with him on on this. Right. I like the I like the idea of something being unexplainable. If I, you know, saw it or experienced it, but I couldn't explain it to you. It was so it was so beyond anything I've ever seen. I, I don't have anything to relate it to. Yeah. But it's just, that's not true. You still would be able to relate it to something. You right. know what I mean? And and it says in the story. Besides, he was almost sure that nothing can be really unnameable. It didn't sound sensible to him. Right. And I, I agree with him. I mean, I yeah. love Lovecraft, but in right. reality, I think everything can be at least somewhat described. And, and or... Lovecraft would probably counter him. Yes, but do you want to try and do that? Because if you try, uh, you will fail. You know, because this is beyond our human faculties to do. And don't you cheapen the actual horror of the thing by even trying, you know? Well, in the stories, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> in the stories, I love it. Yeah. But in, in the reality of it, yeah. I it's just not possible. Because if you experience it, mm-hmm. then you would. You had to experience with one of your five senses. Yeah. I would still be able to. Because if you experience it, you experience it through that filter. And then through that filter, I can correlate it to things that I, you know. Our Lovecraft stand-in is getting very frustrated with what you're saying, and something about the day makes him want to hit back. So he does. It was not, indeed, difficult to begin a counterattack, for I knew that Joel Manton actually half-clung to many old wives' superstitions which sophisticated people had long outgrown. Beliefs in the appearance of dying persons at distant places, and in the impressions left by old faces on the windows through which they had gazed all their lives. The appearance of dying persons at distant places just made me think of that old Time Life commercial where it was like, somebody burns their hand on a hot uh, stove 100 miles away, her sister feels the same pain. Coincidence? Yeah, there's Wasn't a, that how that went? Yeah, there was like uh, four boys are walking in the woods. Suddenly, one of them levitates. Yeah. By, is lifted by unseen forces. Coincidence? I, you know, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and, and most people will probably think I'm nuts. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this story, The Unnameable. Okay. As I've been reading it, as usually happens when we do these, I liked it more and more. But my first reading, I was like, whatever. In fact, I asked you what it was about the other day because I couldn't remember. And you're like, ah, some guys go into a cemetery and they talk and then a monster shows up. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty good style. (laughs) But uh, the movie of this that was made in like 88 or 89. Yeah. I I think I like it better than this story. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I think I liked... There was sequels. There was Unnameable and Unnameable 2. Yeah. And I think Unnameable 2 was actually closer to the story. Yeah, that. but that was called The Statement of Randolph Carter for some reason. Oh, right. Yeah, the, but it didn't have anything to do with The right. Statement of Randolph Carter. That one's on DVD, but the first one isn't for some reason. Yeah, no. I couldn't get it from Netflix. I wanted to watch it again. But I remember liking it. I know it's just a slasher movie, essentially. Right. They, I think they, they have them in the graveyard in the beginning. Yeah. Well, they, they capture one thing that I think in this story is really cool which is the concept of leaving an impression in a window's glass because you've been staring through it right. for so long, mm-hmm. which is suggested in that last quote. Yeah. That, that, that's really neat and yeah. used to good effect in the movie. Yeah, that's, and that was, uh, I mean, that's kind of common ghost folklore belief that, you know, like if uh, somebody died, you can still see there because they you know, looked out the window enough that you could see their face. Somehow it gets an imprint. But I never, uh, my first exposure to that idea was the movie The Unnameable. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, it's not common. I guess it's been so... 
obviously disproven that people don't really talk about it much right. anymore. I don't know. Where, I don't know where we're going with any of this discussion. Luckily, at this point, neither do these guys. No, so the it, story takes a turn because Twilight approaches. Yes, the sun is going down. Right. And uh, Carter says that after his friend had finished his scoffing, you know, he wanted to give him some real evidence on a story at which he had scoffed the most. <laughs> it was funny. Like he, he's keeping a list in his head. Well, he scoffed at this one, but boy, he really scoffed. This, this was one. the number one scoffing. Yeah. My tale had been called the Attic Window and appeared in the January 1922 issue of Whispers. In a good many places, especially the South and the Pacific Coast, they took the magazines off the stands at the complaints of silly milksops. But New England didn't get the thrill and merely shrugged its shoulders at my extravagance. The thing, it was averred, was biologically impossible to start with, merely another of those crazy country mutterings which Cotton Mather had been gullible enough to dump into his chaotic Magnalia Christi Americana, and so poorly authenticated that even he had not ventured to name the locality where the horror occurred. This writer, you know, this character, Carter, uh-huh. he wrote the story and then people didn't want it published. Right, they pulled the, in the Pacific, they pulled it off the stand. Right, well, something kind of similar happens to Lovecraft. Now, he, you know, did a lot of uh, writing with other writers and uh, C.M. Eddy Jr. was this guy that he wrote uh, like four stories with. And, I mean, we're not going to go into those stories because they're really hard to get. There's one book uh, that has a bunch of Lovecraft. It's, it's a book that has all of Lovecraft's things that he did with other people that I've got a hold of. I've got a copy of this. Yeah, one of our listeners sent it. One of our listeners said it. Which I thought was so neat. Yeah. They asked on the, on the message boards, the forums there, if we were going to cover any of these stories. And I said, well, I'd like to, but I don't have a flipping copy of it. And yeah. one of our listeners, Mike uh, Davey, was like, dude, I got an extra copy. I'll send it to you. And yeah. I said, what? So cool. So yeah. Now, I, now they're not readily available to everybody, so we're not going to cover those. We're not going to cover chronologically. Those. They would actually those Ciametti stories would fall right after this story, right? But we're going to move ahead to the festival and not do them. Yeah, one of them is called uh, the Love Dead, and the yeah. Love Dead was a really creepy story that was about a guy who was a necrophiliac, mm-hmm. a guy who had sex with dead people, yeah. and then he couldn't get enough dead people to have sex with, so he started killing people. And then he goes off to World War One, has oh, sex man. with some dead people. I mean, it's really unsettling and yeah. and gross. And uh, basically, the story caused a big stink. And it was going to be taken off. It was taken off the stands in Indiana. Uh-huh. Uh, but the uh, publisher of Weird Tales, uh, Farnsworth, right, became hesitant after this controversy. Yeah. They actually sold more, sold more magazines because of the controversy. I'm so sure, it was kind yeah. of a good deal. But uh, Farnsworth became hesitant to accept stories from uh, Lovecraft after that. And as a result, H.P. Oh. Lovecraft's later tales were, you know, a lot of them were rejected. So wow. he might be talking. I'm not sure about the actual timeline because mm-hmm. it just gives kind of months. So maybe this happened right before he wrote the story, yeah. uh, which would make sense. Um, but I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Well, you know, a lot of artists at the time went on that necrophiliac blacklist. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say though that there are two other or three other love uh, the Ciametti stories. Uh-huh. The first one's called Ashes, which is um, really pulpy and awesome and doesn't make any sense. Okay, and, and it made me laugh out loud. Uh, so great. If you can find it, read it. The Ghost Eater is about a ghost werewolf. I love that. Which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, again, not really a very good story. <laughs> Wait, now hold on. Is it a ghost that got bitten by a wolf? No, it's a ghost of a werewolf. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then there's another story called Deaf, Dumb, and Blind about a deaf, dumb, and blind guy who moves into a haunted house, which is I, I did, honestly wow. I couldn't get through it. 
basically the end of the story was, you know, the guy had an assistant that helped him out. The assistant ran out, and then the guy was typing on a typewriter. He could still type on a typewriter. He lost his senses in the war in some kind of accident. And, oh God, it's just such a boring, terrible, Somebody was story. like, all right, people love The Haunting of Hill House. People love The Miracle Worker. We've got to get these things together somehow. <laughs> That's but in terrible. the end, a ghost writes on the typewriter. Yeah. It's like I got him. Ah, uh, you know, it's just oh, wow. it's just terrible. It was. I don't think Lovecraft actually had much to do with writing that particular one. To get back to our story, right? Carter is talking about his story, The Attic Window. Right. This is a story that he wrote. That he wrote. Yes. Yeah. And he's a writer. It's uh, it takes something that was mentioned in Cotton Mather's book mm -hmm. about some freakish kid that had been born in the Massachusetts colonies, but that's all that Mather touches on. And in, and in Carter's story, the thing had grown up. It was out looking in people's windows at night. It was locked away in the attic of a house where it had been looking out of that window. And somebody centuries later had looked at the window where it had been, and uh -huh. they went their hair went all gray from what they saw. Right. Well, I mean, uh, he, which I which I love that effect. You know, it's great yes. to see that finally in a Lovecraft story where somebody's hair somebody instantaneously white. goes white. Yeah. But and and people accused him of that being cheap sensationalism. But then Randolph pulls back the curtain a bit and says, Hey. You know, I found an old diary kept from 1706 to 1723. Yeah. And I also from his family. Know, from my family. Yeah. And I also know about some scars on in one of my ancestors' chest and back. Something had caught my ancestor on a dark valley road, leaving him with marks of horns on his chest and of ape-like claws on his back. And when they looked for prints in the trampled dust, they found the mixed marks of split hooves and vaguely anthropoid paws. Once a post writer said he saw an old man chasing and calling to a frightful, loping, nameless thing on Meadow Hill in the thinly moonlit hours before dawn, and many believed him. Certainly there was strange talk one night in 1710, when the childless, broken old man was buried in the crypt behind his own house in sight of the blank slate slab. They never unlocked that attic door, but left the whole house as it was, dreaded and deserted. When noises came from it, they whispered and shivered and hoped that the lock on the attic door was strong. Then they stopped hoping when the horror occurred at the parsonage, leaving not a soul alive or in one piece. With the years, the legends take on a spectral character. I suppose the thing, if it was a living thing, must have died. The memory had lingered hideously, all the more hideous because it was so secret. In Mather's story... Uh, some beast with a blemished eye gave birth to something with a blemished eye. Right. That's what we know. And uh, what he didn't report about, Carter says, is that there was this locked attic door that the people whispered about in this house and mm -hmm. tales about this blemished eye that people saw in their windows at night. And there was a kid who entered this abandoned house mm -hmm. that's rumored about in 1793, and he went nuts. Yeah, so that's pretty creepy. All of this is just to say, hey man, I based that story on something that a lot of evidence suggests really happened. Right, and then Joel's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's a story. Come on, there's no evidence there, you know what right. I mean? I mean, he maintains that, yeah, there could have been a deformed kid or something. Yeah, but, exactly. but was it so unnameable? Right, you know, yeah. Come on. And Carter says, yeah, but, there, you know, there are also these stories about vapors and shapeless apparitions that people talk about on the grounds. I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah. And then we, we get some uh, dialogue, which is nice. The hour must now have grown very late. A singularly noiseless bat brushed by me, and I believed it touched Manton also, for although I could not see him, I felt him raise his arm. Presently he spoke. But is that the house with the attic windows still standing and deserted? Yes, I answered. I have seen it. And did you find anything there in the attic or anywhere else? There were some bones up under the eaves. They may have been what the boy saw. If he was sensitive, he wouldn't have needed anything in the window glass to unhinge him. 
If they all came from the same object, it must have been an hysterical, delirious monstrosity. It would have been blasphemous to leave such bones in the world, so I went back with the sack and took them to the tomb behind the house. There was an opening where I could dump them in. You ought to have seen that skull. It had four-inch horns, but a face and jaw something like yours and mine. At last I could feel a real shiver run through Matin, who had moved very near, but his curiosity was undeterred. And what about the window panes? They were all gone. One window had lost its entire frame, and in the other there was not a trace of glass in the little diamond apertures. They were that kind, the old lattice windows that went out of use before 1700. I don't believe they've had any glass for a hundred years or more. Maybe the boy broke them, if he got that far, the legend doesn't say. Manton was reflecting again. I'd like to see that house, Carter. Where is it? Glass or no glass, I must explore it a little. And the tomb where you put those bones and the other grave without an inscription, the whole thing must be a bit terrible. You did see it. Until it got dark. <laughs> They've been sitting at the house the whole time. Yeah, that, there was a house. I mean, we failed to mention this earlier in the in the story. He mentioned that they're in this graveyard, and there's a house that's nearby. Yes, yes, that's a mean trick. Well, I don't know if it's a mean trick as much as um, when rereading it, it seemed like he was playing a joke on his friend that all this was BS. But as the story goes on, it's not. It's, it's not. It's, it's yeah. all true. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a guy out to Crystal Lake <laughs> and tell him all of this Jason stuff. <laughs> Uh, this but not, is going to be hilarious. Not let him know that it actually happened at Crystal Lake. Yeah, and that that guy's still at large. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be hilarious. <laughs> and of course, it's it's a pretty effective device because uh, Joel lets out a little cry of fear. Uh huh. And it's answered by something. And they they hear a window frame open from the attic. Then came a noxious rush of noisome, frigid air from that same dreaded direction, followed by a piercing shriek just beside me on that shocking, rifted tomb of man monster. In another instant, I was knocked from my gruesome bench by the devilish threshing of some unseen entity of titanic size but undetermined nature, knocked sprawling on the root-clutched mold of that abhorrent graveyard, while from the tomb came such a stifled uproar of gasping and whirring that my fancy peopled the rayless gloom with miltonic legions of the misshapen damned. There was a vortex of withering, ice-cold wind, and then the rattle of loose bricks and plaster, but I had mercifully fainted before I could learn what it meant. <laughs> he does exactly what he says that Joel is complaining about. Yeah, exactly. Story. Yeah, he faints on the, you know, it actually happens to him. Well... Uh, when they come to, they they find they're side by side in a hospital. Yeah, and a, a uh, farmer had found them. A farmer had found them away. a mile away from the cemetery uh, or the graveyard where they were, yeah. and they were unconscious and they were brought to the hospital. Why were they brought to the hospital? Well, Manton was gouged. He had wounds in his chest. Wow. And well, and then there's something about Carter too. Like he's got a hoof print on him. It reminded me of an old joke. Uh, I'm not gonna tell. <laughs> well, tell it. All right. It reminded me. This whole story reminded me of an old joke. That's terrible about a, a a man and a woman are out visiting a, a fallen friend at the graveyard, and uh, they're there for a long time, and so they start to get kind of randy, and they decide to just you know do it right there uh-huh. on on one of the tombs. And uh, uh, later, the woman is complaining of some back pain, so she goes to the doctor, and uh, he examines her, and he says, "Well, I can see the source of the pain. It says right here on your ass that it died in 1792." <laughs> 
That's a, that's a lame joke. That right. Is really uh, lame joke. Uh, right, Carter. So, but anyway, <laughs> so Carter has hoof prints on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, um, and this prompts some more dialogue. After the doctors and nurses had left, I whispered an awestruck question. Good God, Manton! What was it? Those scars? Was it like that? And I was too dazed to exult when he whispered back a thing I had half expected. No, it wasn't that way at all. It was everywhere. A gelatin, a slime. Yet it had shapes, a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. There were eyes and a blemish. It was the pit, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination. Carter, it was... The unnameable. Of course, last sentence in italics. There. Yes, exactly. And um, and that's the end. Of the that's story. the end of the story. To me, this seems like a, a joke. Like Lovecraft kind of is poking yeah. fun at himself, and then writes a story where the characters. It's like a story within a story. Yeah, yeah. I know, and you know what? I like it now more. Just even in having this discussion. You know, Joshi said that this story was a satire of the stolid bourgeois unresponsiveness of the weird tale. There is some kind of stuck up stuff in this story where he's like, you know, average sun dwellers. I don't remember what he said. You know, normal <laughs> yeah. mundane people. They, they just don't get it. Yeah. They don't get it. Yeah. The but, number one reflexive response of the artist who can't find an audience is, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not blaming myself. This audience is this too audience unsophisticated is to understand. But my I feel work. like Lovecraft doesn't. I mean, maybe I'm putting too much on him, but it seems funny to me. Like the yeah. whole thing seems funny, and then even him saying that is part of the joke. He's just like, yeah, these people just don't get it because my yeah. stuff's so awesome. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think he is diffusing. Well, it gets tense when you're creating things and you do have critics, and oh, they yeah. point out things that are true. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, you know, like we made this movie, and people sometimes when they they bash it, we've got right. bad reviews for it. Absolutely, they hit on things that are very accurate. Yeah, and you want to go grab them and go, yes, but <laughs> there was X Y Z that made it that way, or this right. is the circumstances where, or you know, I mean, I'm sensitive about this podcast because I, you go through the same thing, I'm sure. But when we edit it, I have to listen to it over and over. And oh over. yeah, I know. And pretty soon, I'm just like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> What? You know, I well, I just walk away mean? and I just start making fun of it. You know, I walk away and I'm oh, like, right. oh, yeah, here's another thing that reminds me of something from my childhood. Uh, and, oh, yeah, that's really cool. That's a very yeah. accurate uh, impersonation of yourself. <laughs> I mean, if you're doing anything at some point, you're, you know, you're, you're your own worst critic. And, and, uh, right, and right. sometimes you want to just diffuse it. Like, for example, by making fun of yourself. As I just... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and I get a little... It's this is a little strange thing. I mean, this podcast is an artistic uh, endeavor for myself. Sure. You know, like we're we're creating something here. Yeah. But it's a creation that's based entirely off somebody else. Right. Right. You know, like I mean, this is something that anybody that studies other people has to come to terms with. It's like yeah. you know, I'm never going to do the great things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to comment on this other person's great things. Yeah. And that's going to be my my life, and my existence. Yeah. That can make life hard sometimes. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I of course I do strive to do my own creative. Things, yeah. Right. But at, in this particular you know, instance, we are mm. totally riding on the coattails of H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, and, we just had this conversation the other day. I was talking about decisions I made not to go into graduate studies. Right. Uh, when I, because I got my 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 bachelor's in English. That's it. But I had a I had a really great American literature professor who was sort of pushing me to continue my researches, specifically on eighteen um, nineties in weird literature. Because oh, right. I, I had written a whole thing about use of the color yellow and the king in yellow and yeah. and. Mm -hmm. and uh, and I was walking away from the English building one night late, and I saw somebody up in one of the third floor uh, 
offices with mm-hmm. their light on and I just thought I can't be that person <laughs> you know I don't want to be this person who's up there pouring over I don't want to be the expert on Chaucer you know? right yet here I am you know right, yeah. <laughs> a decade on and, and here we are you know making a show about this guy's writing but yeah you know and it, it's tough to deal with criticism but I think mm-hmm. Lovecraft does it in a really kind of intelligent and funny way yeah I guess our whole discussion we're saying we understand defensiveness about what you're doing oh yeah absolutely. everybody feels a little bit like the work that they're doing is kind of stupid. (laughs) So so it's, uh, you know, as I thought about that and as we were doing this, now I like the story much more. Oh, there you go. I guess maybe I was just reading it as a straight up monster story, you know, and it falls flat as that. Oh yeah. But as a, uh, as a, as a dialogue about one's own work. It's, yeah. It's pretty cool. I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty cool. And I, I don't have anything more to say about the story. I don't really either. As we said earlier in the podcast, our next up, we have the festival. The festival. Which is about Mardi Gras, as far as I know. Yeah. That'll be timely. Yeah. Um, that's a stupid joke. Uh, <laughs> do you know anything about that story? Uh, I think it's about a, a festival. Yeah. Some okay. kind, some kind of celebration. Good. No, I've I, I read it a long time ago, and I have a vague memory <laughs> of. I think it takes place in Kingsport, and some oh, really? guy comes back. This I'm, it's great that I'm speculating what the story is about. A guy comes back. <laughs> I read it a long time ago. Yeah, he comes back from wherever he lives to Kingsport because every year they have a festival and it's kind of an arcane sort of uh, mystical uh, order, druids, witches, something like that. Gotcha. And I think that's what the whole story is about. Probably okay. you should cut all that. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the type of insight that that, that you are donating your hard-earned money to, uh, to support. Uh, well, okay. I'm glad that we could meander all over the place. We did, talking we did about a great them. job. So we'll we'll see you next week when we talk about the festival. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. <laughs> HPPodcraft.com. <laughs>